0: WKNR Keener13. Welcome to the Keener13.com Podcast, a look back at the soundtrack of a generation, as heard on Detroit's legendary rock radio station, WKNR. I'm Scott Westerman, curator at Keener13.com. Hey, let's live it up with Robin Seymour
1: on WKNR
2: Keener13.
1: Packer Marches on. Hey, Birds, want a treat to eat? Well, at a price it's hard to beat. Well, sure you do. Get Chiquita Golden Ripe Bananas at Packer's very sweet price of just 10 cents a pound. Chiquita, the world's finest and sweetest bananas. Only 10 cents a pound to Packer. Here. Look out. These are (laughs) the ventures on the Robin Seymour Show
2: with the Slaughter on 10th
0: Avenue. It's fitting that our reboot of the Keener13.com podcast begins with one of its most illustrious voices. Our guest is Robin Seymour, who was a fixture at the station for nearly 18 years, spanning the WKMH days, and as part of the original cast that launched Keener into the stratosphere. It's impossible to have grown up in Detroit during the WKNR era and not have known about Robin Seymour. He was an innovator, the first to test many fresh approaches for audience engagement in Detroit, and a visionary who could turn a good idea into a great one. He's worked almost nonstop for most of his 90-plus years on the planet and will soon release his autobiography. Robin Seymour, welcome.
2: (laughs) Wow. Are you talking about me? Uh, I, I really thank you very
0: much for those kind words. When did you decide that radio would be a career?
2: Well, I'll tell you, I uh, <clears throat> when I got back from the service, uh, go, went back to Wayne University and was part of the guild and did some commercials and so forth, but uh, needed to do more. And one day I was sitting there and happened to look at broadcast magazine and they had an ad- advertisement there. Uh, they needed some help, and so I sent a little information to them, and lo and behold, they called me back. In fact, Don Groot, who was general manager at WWJ, then, unbeknownst to me, was the uh, manager and vice president of WBAL in Baltimore, and he hired me to do sound effects. I spent a couple of months there. I wasn't too happy about it because it only paid $40 a week. And I always put 10 cents aside on Friday morning so I could grab the bus and go to the station to pick up my check and go to work. I came back to uh, Detroit, back to uh, the Wayne University Broadcasting Guild, and also then uh, was looking for work, and a friend of mine there at the Guild, Fred Fisher, said, there's a new station in Dearborn, and they're looking for somebody, but it doesn't pay much. I said, I don't care. So I just did it part-time at 90 cents an hour. I went there and auditioned and got the job. Eight months later, Fred Nord, the owner, came in and said, who's on the air today at 2 o'clock? And I said, me. He said, you're going to be a disc jockey. At that time, I just, again, did it part-time. It went on for a few months, and it started to get some recognition and so forth. So I really didn't decide definitely what I was going to do until about another year or so when my income increased, uh, the audience increased, and I said, gee, I might have something here. But I really wanted to do acting on the stage because I did a lot of uh, stage work back in uh, Wayne University and in high school and so forth and I had a goal to be the world's greatest actor. I didn't quite make that. I never really decided I wanted to make this a career until I started to see some income that looked like the future could be a bright one. So I would say about two years after I was a part of WTMH, I said, well, this looks
0: like it. But your first appearance on radio was, in fact, much earlier, thanks to George Trendle and WXYZ.
2: Close to 12 years of the age, I went to audition at WXYZ, and I got to be one of the uh, nephews uh, at WXYZ on the Lone Ranger, playing the part of Dan Reed, the Lone Ranger's nephew, and I always tell people I have a big part. Okay, Ranger, okay, Tonto.
1: I declare, Dan, this is going to be a night that ain't fit for man or beast. You don't have to go to Mr. Martin's office tonight, do you? (laughs) Nope. Said I'd better stay home to see if the fireplace is kept well filled. Uh. What's that you're doing? Well, just carving something out of this hunk of wood. It's cowboy's head, see? Oh. Is that a mask you've shown over the eyes? Uh. (laughs) You spotted it, eh, Graham? Is that the Lone Ranger? No, I never said it was. Oh, you never said. You needn't say. I've been able to read your face ever since you was knee-high to a pup. And there's a special look you always get when you're thinking about that masked man. Gee, I wonder if I'll ever have a chance to go to the southwest where he is. You wonder if you'll ever have the chance? Well, why won't you have the chance, son? There's a chance for anyone to do anything if he makes it. I suppose there's a chance the Lone Ranger will ever come up into this high-border country. Now, what gave you that idea? He never has, has he, Graham? Mm, Nope. That's why hardly anyone around here knows much about him. Mm. Just wondering. I Guess i better put another log on that fire.
2: And that paid about $35 a show, so that wasn't too bad at at the age of 12, quite 12. But uh, I did that for about eight months, and then my voice... Uh, changed and they looked for somebody else at the age uh, of nine when I was in the fourth grade they were going to be doing a play of jack and the beanstalk for the parents every year they put that on we in the afternoon we do it for the uh, school and then in the evening for the parents and they were looking for the uh, shortest guy in school that would fit on the uh, marionette stage. And I, and another fellow by the name of Paul, I can't think of his last name, we stood behind a curtain and we did the, the, she handed us a three by five card in honor. It said, fee 5 fo I'll, you know, what of a English man, be he alive, be he let, I'll grind his bones to make his bed. And he, we came out in front of the curtain, put her hand over each of her heads, and I got the most applause. That's what really started me
0: in acting. When Fred Noor told you you were going to be a disc jockey, what went through your mind?
2: I knew what it was, uh, I heard about it. I used to listen to other disc jockeys in New York. In fact, uh, the Make Believe Ballroom, that was the one thing I listened to. I thought it was great. <laughs> You'll so William B. Williams on N.E.W.
1: From the make-believe ballroom on the York's Fifth Avenue. Don't miss the swinging world of Willie B. And all his talented guests exclusively on
2: W. N.E.W. I knew what this he was when I was in the Army after the war. when It was an Air Fo- Air American Forces Network. Uh, I was on from 10 to midnight playing transcriptions and records and so forth and so on. Being a disc jockey, I knew I just had to get a whole bunch of records together and play it, and that was it. I didn't think too much of it until I started to realize that we were getting an audience. At that time, we didn't have too much of anything going on WKMH, and when the record people got it, when the guys and the promotion people came around, started to come around with bringing me the records, etc. I said, hey, I might have something here.
0: Before the station moved to 15001 Michigan Avenue in Dearborn, you were above a furniture store and next to a church.
2: Uh, yeah, it was Sacred Heart. The, the church next door was Sacred Heart. And we were upstairs of the furniture store at that time. And some of the kids started to come upstairs, sit in the studio, listen to the records, do their homework. Then more of them came. We had fifteen, twenty, twenty-five, maybe at a time, and they would dance. And so basically, we had a record hop on the air, and, uh, and, the, and the and the audience uh, was larger every day. And of course, that was the uh, wasn't that big a studio either. But uh, that's when the record hop started. I don't recall exactly when, but I do remember. Uh, My first record hop, I got paid $15. I mean, that was a fortune.
0: Who was your main competition in those days?
2: Yeah, that's a good question because opposite us, of course, was the top disc jockey in Detroit. When I got out of service, uh, I was listening to some records. I remember we were at lunch. I was at lunch with somebody. This was before I was thinking of even going to WKMH. And lo and behold, it was Ed McKenzie. And he was Jack the Bellboy. Ed McKenzie hired me when I was 15 years old. And I was on every Sunday night from midnight to six on a program they called Corn Till Morn. (laughs) And as I recall, I was pretty bad. And he came in one night when I was on the air and he said, let me ask you something, kid. I said, yes, sir. I said, what do you think you're going to be doing for the rest of your life? I said, well, I'd like to do this. I said, he said, you mean you want to be in radio? And so I said, yes, I'd like to. He says, well, don't. You'll always be on the outside looking in. I will never forget those words. And I really thanked Ed McKenzie for making me stay in radio and keep that thought in the back of my mind. It was quite a deal. And when I found out he was Jack the bellboy, because he never really liked music, didn't like the record people, etc., but he did such a tremendous job, at great delivery, and was the top disc jockey, and we were opposite
0: each other for 13 years. So, in effect, Ed McKenzie is responsible for your career.
2: Yes, yes. Uh, you know how we had cocktail parties from time to time when the record artists came in town. Uh, they always had little gatherings like that for us to meet and promote their records, etc. And Ed McKenzie would come to those, and we became good friends. And then one of them I said to him about the story, and so he didn't remember it, of course. But uh, I did remember it, and I thanked him for that. <laughs> he was the reason
0: I stayed in the business. You must have interviewed thousands of artists over the years.
2: Big artists and small artists and what have you, even like Tony Bennett and the Everly Brothers and Paul Anka. And Al and Rosemary Clooney. You know who the first interview I had was a guy by the name of
0: Bull Moose Jackson. Now I remember Bull Moose. His stuff was often banned for being too suggestive. In fact, during my radio career, I played Aerosmith's Smith's cover of one of his last popular tunes, something called Big Ten Inch Record. Got me the
1: strangest woman. Believe me, this chick's no sense. But I really get her going when I take out my big 10-inch record of the band that plays the blues. The band that plays the blues. She just loves my big 10-inch record of her favorite
2: blues. That was my first interview, and he was terrible, and I was terrible. My second interview with Alvino Rey. Does that mean, they mean anything to you?
0: Associated with the King family.
2: Okay. Alvina is in the orchestra and the King sisters, they were playing at Eastwood Gardens. And I would ask him a question. He would say yes. Another question, he'd say no. And I was perspiring. I was nervous. And I said, I'm never going to make it. The next interview I had was about a week later with Tommy Dorsey, That's when he was at Eastwood, and he came in <clears throat> he was uh, quite a tippler he used to like to drink a little bit, I understand, but he walked into the studio. it was summer, it was hot, and he was perspiring and you could just feel the um uh what should I say, the aroma of scotch in the studio. But uh, he was in pretty good shape, asked him a few questions, and he says, don't worry, kid, we'll get through this thing. And he started to talk and asked me questions, and it moved. And I remember we talked for about 40 minutes, and that sort of broke the ice with me. After that, I was pretty relaxed. So I remember those three.
0: What do you remember about the transition from WKMH to WKNR?
2: Well, we had to make a transition. I used to tell people we were number 11 in a 10-station market. Uh, It just fell apart after Mr. Knorr passed on. And then Walter Patterson became manager. And he asked me, and he had been there before. I don't know if you know about that. Walter Patterson was like their uh, program director when they started the station. He was a friend of Fred Knorr and the family. And uh, (laughs) I don't mean to digress, but he played the piano and sang. And he was on every day. I'm going way back to the beginning of WKMH. We had a grand piano in the uh, studio, in the large studio. And I would introduce him, and here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Walter Patterson. And then he used to play in the background, you know, sort of, and then he would start to sing. And one of the songs he would sing would be uh, The Little Petunia in an Onion Patch. I don't know if you're familiar with that. But it basically was aimed toward kids. He. Uh, <laughs> Disappeared, he left, and then it came back after Mr. Noor passed on with that terrible accident. And he was the manager. And the first thing he asked me, I remember I invited him to dinner, and he asked me, Robin, what do you think we need to do? I said, Well, Pat, I'll tell you where the industry is going now. It's going top 40 and it's going formula. I said, I'm not into that, but the point is, you've got to go along with the changes. I've been a dinosaur in this industry, but I know it's time. That there has to be improvements, and this is where people are going with the jingles, with fast-paced, young sounds. Uh, it's going here, and this is what needs to be done. I well, don't, I don't know. Six months later, he hired Mike Joseph at fifty thousand dollars to do what we had told him about and suggested uh, six months before. But the changeover, I was welcoming it. I never believed in top 40 and never believed in formula radio because I felt it would be the downfall of the industry over a period of time. But at this particular time, it needed formula radio. And so the switchover, when they then hired, Frank Maruka became program director, as you know, and then getting Bobby Green and, Goodwin and Sweeney, and then of course, uh, in in the afternoon we had Gary Stevens. He reminded me at that time of me when I first started. He had that tremendous delivery and sound for Top Forty. It was made for Formula Radio. Anyway, they put it together. And I just and they put me on. Mike Joseph realized my audience, of course, over the years has now grown up. And where should you put a spot like that? Nine saloon. A lot of homemakers who used to be teenagers. And the whole station just moved in beautiful rhythm. So, yes, I enjoyed it. The switchover really saved my life in radio. It seemed overnight we became number one because everything matched.
0: What precipitated your departure from Keener?
2: When I was <clears throat> got into TV, Walter Patterson was the manager. He called me in his office, and he said, you've got to make up your mind right here, Robin, either radio or TV. I says, what are you talking about? He says, well, you don't spend enough time here at the station. You're in and out. If you want to be in TV, fine. I said, we can cross-plug. Ed Metcalf, the manager and vice president of CQLW and Channel 9, said, we can cross clock. So at the end of the TV show, he'd say, tune in tomorrow morning. at 9 o'clock. You hear me on, 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 on Tina Radio. And in the afternoon, we would sign off on TV. we would say, we'll be on tomorrow morning at 9 to noon. It's Tina. We'll say, and then vice versa to tune in to Channel 9. Uh, Patterson said, you <clears throat> know, he says, you know, whatever one of the market I'm going to, just got the new ratings and I want to show you just where you are at nine to noon. He then looked up at me and sort of got a pale look in his face. He said, Hmm, your top rating here on our station from nine to noon. So anyhow, I told John because I saw no future for me. Uh, first of all, when Walter Patterson came to the station. Uh, he took away about 75% of my income. Uh, because we were on a commission basis. Fred Knorr allowed me to do that because the incentive, he believed in incentive. He said, Robin, you can have 10% of the commercials on your show because it's going to help the salesman too and they'll make their commission. When you make 10%, I make 90%. He was that kind of a guy. (laughs) I'll never forget Walter Patterson. The next day when he had taken my... Income away. Water come next day. He says, look out the window. Look at my new Cadillac. I did. I turned to him and I said, oh, that's where my commission went. He was not too happy about that. <clears throat> anyway, I'm telling you a lot of things that I haven't even thought about in years.
0: Tell us about Teen Town and its evolution to Swingin' Time.
2: My good friend Jerry Curtis, he had a small advertising agency. Sam Gardner, who ran EIT Electric. Travis Institute, and my buddy, uh, Art Servey. We got together one time and said, we got to do something. Think of, of a show. I said, well, kids, blah, blah, blah. So I don't know who it was, whether it would be Sam or whatever. I think all of us together, we came up with the name Teen Town, where we salute every week another other high school and have them on the show as the audience. Do like a little history on each show. Sometimes we had the principal or one of the teachers on the faculty and to do a little bit. And that's how Teen Town was born once a week on Saturday. And it went along, I think, for about a year and a half. This was really exciting. Channel 9 came to me and asked me if I'd do a summer replacement show and said they were going to call it swinging time and they have it on Monday through Friday. You know, would I be interested? I said, are you kidding? Let's go. That's how that was born. When Patterson said, well, you're gonna have to leave because you're gonna do that. I says, okay. He said, how much time do you want? I said, <laughs> I don't wanna leave. You're the one that's telling me. So he said, well, we're gonna need time to replace you. How about six weeks? I said, okay, that's what you want. Five weeks after that, I still didn't know if I was going to go on with swing Time uh, because they had a clearing in New York. Just about five or six days before my whole life began, <laughs> Peter got a call from Ed Metcalf. He says, "Me, Gene Roper and me at the uh, London Shop House after you get through with work because we're going ahead with swinging Time. Oh, boy. Saved my life there was no Teen Town after that, because they said, you cannot do this as an independent anymore. You're now a part of CKLW and Channel 9, and you'll do instead of Teen Town every Saturday, it'll be the Robin Seymour show on Saturday and swinging time Monday through Friday. I said, terrific. My guys were happy for it, too. I was very concerned at first with Sam and Jerry and Art, and uh, they understood you know, how to make a living, so that was the end of Teen Town and the beginning of Swing Town. Swing time from 1965 through to 1968.
0: This was all happening in parallel to Dick Clark's American Bandstand in Philly, but you had a unique competitive advantage with Motown in the house.
2: Yes, there was a little company called Motown. And uh, I was so fortunate. And it was like both of us got to be known at the same time. Uh, I knew that. Barry Gordy, uh, and uh, when I started Swingin' Time, we always had. It seemed every day we had another Motown artist because they were just starting out. Because all of the Motown artists that were the original Motown artists always appeared on our show first. And of course, WXYZ uh, had Club 70. Is that what they call it, or Club 7?
0: Club 1270
2: for, for a while. For a while. But then when they went off the air, we were the only dance party. We were the only show in town. So I won by default. And uh, yes, we had every Motown artist. And I used to hit everybody from time to time when they'd say, how come swinging time just keeps going on? And on? I said, well, it's because I'm so great. Uh, the fact that we had every Motown artist on the show ever, that has nothing to do with it, of course. But uh, Motown helped us, and we helped Motown.
0: You had a wide array of artists on the program. James Brown, Dion Warwick, Wayne Cochran, and even Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. Tell me about that program.
2: Oh, let me, I'm glad you asked me that. <clears throat> they came out and what we did, we had the idea of put, put art paper all around the walls in the studio. And that was a time of psychedelic stuff starting to get real popular, as you know. We gave each kid markers with three or four different colors. And then we say we're going to play some music now, going to play something with the Mothers of Invention and Frank Zappa. And I want you to put on the wall whatever you think about, it, whatever idea that you have and so forth. And Frank Zappa will just run around in the studio, which he did. And from time to time, he bent over. He bent over one time a little bit too much. Remember, this is live television. There's nothing we could do. But uh, he showed more than he was supposed to. it was very brief. But the phones lit up like you wouldn't believe. How dare he do things like that with, with young people on, the, with, uh, looking at the show and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, we must have had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of calls. That was quite an experience. And uh, with Frank Zappa, he was quite a guy.
0: And then there were the garage bands that made good. Is it true that Art Survey, the man we remember as Bozo the Clown, discovered the Rationals?
2: Art came to me one time. He said, there's a band that I heard. They are great, Robin. Uh, You've got to come out and listen to them. They're going to they're be at a play for, for us at a, at a hop. He booked them in. And I went out and listened. Good looking kids. Great feeling. Great excitement. Uh, I did everything in my power to help them as much as I could. Uh, There's a little story about them when they did their record, Respect. Respect by the Rationals took off like crazy and was a real big hit in Michigan. Well, I get a call one day from Jerry Wexler, who was the A&R man of Atlantic Records. And he said, I understand you have a band called the Rationals. I said, I don't have them. I mean, they're on my show and they do a lot of work for me, but I had nothing involved in management. He said, "You know their manager's name and number. I want to talk to them. We're interested in signing them." I said, "Jerry, that would be terrific." And he called their manager, and he called me back. And Jerry said, "What is with this guy?" I said, "Why?" He said, "He doesn't he will not sign him unless I send him a check for five thousand dollars." He said, "I don't do things like that." And don't they realize Atlantic Records and what we are, what we should do for them? I said, I'm awfully sorry. Well, we dropped it <clears throat> two weeks later because they had just signed Aretha Franklin, May she rest in peace, and she came out with a little record called Respect. And it was amazing. And what is even more amazing is when I talked to Morgan here well, this happened about a year ago. And I told him this story. And he said, you know, this is the first time i have heard that. He never said a thing to us. And I kicked myself for not taking it a step further and calling this guy and trying to explain to him what this could mean to them. So this is a story I've always carried with me. I often wonder what could have happened to the Rationals had they signed. They did finally sign with Bobby Cruz label. They cut an album that didn't do that much, but uh, that was the end of respect for the rationalist.
0: So after Swingin' Time, you tried your hand in management, promoting a band called The Sunday Funnies.
2: Great group, great guys. Uh, Richard Figg is still their lead singer who is working in town. Fantastic, this guy's amazing. And Rare Earth, I was very close to like uh, some of the top guys in Motown and mentioned the group to them. And I said, well, if you think they're good, we'll sign them, which they did. And they got Andrew Oldham to their production. And when I told the guys who it was, they went through the ceiling. Andrew Oldham was responsible for all of the early hits of the Rolling Stones. Had.
0: So after managing the Sunday Funnies, you had a brief return to UHF television in Walled Lake back before UHF was universal. What happened after that?
2: After that, I got into network marketing uh, and started to do very well. That was in 1971, and I stayed in direct marketing until 1986, and 1995 started uh, Opportunity Productions, which went up until three years ago, and I hate to use the word retired, because I never wanted Completely retire, I want to keep doing something as long as I can. Opportunity production fit very well. we had did infomercials, corporate videos, both radio and did a lot of duplicating their seminars and did seminars got one infomercial that was a tremendous success uh, with a product called Super Blue Stuff. It was a paying product. Jim Lefevre the former Dodger manager and ball player. Did some of the show for us and so forth. That show did about forty million dollars in sales in less than four years. Unfortunately, I did not have a percentage of it, but replaced the media for two years and did very well. They they were they were doing a million dollars a week, uh, in 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 business and so forth for a long time. And then I did uh, an infomercial with. Uh, Tippi Hedren, you might remember the name from Hitchcock's The Birds. Yeah, what a delightful, beautiful woman. And I had the pleasure of meeting Ernest Borgenheim, who did two infomercials for me. God love him. I've never met a man that is more outgoing and friendly as Ernest Borgenheim. I'll never forget on the first one, we gave him the script. He looked at it. And he says, well, I want to read part of it. And he started to read it. He went all the way through his parts. Then he looked at me. He says, Robin, you think it's that, it's that going to be okay? And I said, here, here. Ernest Borgnine's asking me? <laughs> yes, Mr. Borgnine. And uh, one of the great things that I can remember, when we left, he stood in front of the door and put his arm around me. He says, Robin, I want to tell you something. I enjoyed working with you. Anytime you want me, you just call me, I'll be there. And uh he did, he did another infomercial for us with an automotive product. But uh, that was in Opportunity Productions from nineteen ninety-five, roughly right then, up until just three years ago. And I had a heart attack, it'll now be six years. I have two stints and thank goodness, everything seems to be fine. And then people that I knew, some friends, et cetera, said, Robin, you got to write a book. I said, what the heck am I writing a book about? Who cares? <laughs> Just know you. So when I came out here to this uh, uh, senior living, and the reason I came to uh, San Antonio for senior living is because my two daughters are here. I get to see them now, which is wonderful. So I have kept very busy with this thing. I think if I knew I was going to work as hard and be as busy as I've been this past year now putting this thing together, I don't think I would have done it. A wonderful lady that's also here is a writer, and she's the one that was writing it for me. We're almost done, and uh, we should be able to be finished with it, I would have to say before christmas
0: um
2: so uh, we'll have a christmas present for everybody
0: to what do you attribute your long and successful career
2: my dad (laughs) my dad made it god bless him to 97 and uh i think it's because he worked always kept active uh i've i've worked and i stopped to think of it since i've been Eleven and a half years old, uh, but doing things that I liked most of the time. Uh, I enjoyed, of course, radio. I enjoyed acting on radio. Uh, I enjoyed swinging time. I would have to say, the happiest years on in in, in the industry in my profession. I loved this swing time so much. It was just an enjoyment. There's something different every day. I mean, we were doing the same thing, but it was different, as you know, on TV, The kids were, there. a lot of the kids were different, the artists were different, and it was fun.
0: Robin Seymour's autobiography is due out in time for Christmas. Robin, it's been a pleasure. Well, likewise. Find everything Keener on our website at Keener13.com. We're also on Facebook. And join us again as we turn back the hands of time on the Keener 13 podcast. I'm Scott Westerman. Thanks for making every season keener season.
1: By golly, we're running out of time. And yours truly, Robin, wants to thank all of you for joining us on this Saturday show from 5 to 6 and daily, 3.30 until 4. More to come tonight at the Purple Pad, tomorrow at Detonia, and next Friday night at the Big Dance at the Allen Park Chatterbox. Until then, join us Monday at 3.30 and the Robin's saying, bless you all. Bye-bye. <laughs>